And today, as we continue on this journey in the book of Joshua, I want to talk today about relationships. Now, this is something that we're all familiar with. We're all familiar with with relationships. And so I want to just ask you to pause for a moment as we start today and think about the various kinds of relationships. Think of a couple of examples, types of relationships that you may have. And these are going to be numerous because a relationship can really be related to any person. It can be related to an object even. You can have a relationship even with a concept, really anything, a person, place, or thing that you have a connection with. It can be said that there's a relationship there. So can, can you think of a few, just two or three, just top of your head that you have in mind? Uh, perhaps you're thinking of a relationship you have with, with family. That's a common one. A relationship with friends. Maybe you're sitting beside some friends here in church today, and that comes to your mind. Your relationship with God. You have a relationship with an employer, with a workplace. A relationship with a church. Uh, if you go to the gym, you have a relationship with that organization and the people who go to the gym as well. You can even have a relationship or be identified with a particular address or a house at which you live at. Maybe a school. We identify with our school. We think about the, the places we graduated from. It becomes part of our identity, a bit of a relationship that we have with the school we graduated from. Sports teams. We, we root and cheer for a particular team. We have a relationship in a way with them. But here's the question. As you think of those relationships you have in your mind, are, are all of those relationships equal? Are all those relationships you have in mind, are they all rated equally in your life, in your mind? Probably not. I think it's safe to say we would all agree that no, not all relationships are created equal. And some are more important than others. Now, for example, I'm an Oilers fan. I know, it's hard. But, but we, we keep up the good fight, Right? So I'm an Oilers fan, so I will attend games. I will cheer. I will buy some merchandise. I will be a supporter. But I also have a relationship with, like, work, for example. So I'm not going to skip work to go to an Oilers game. There, there, there's, a, there's not an equal level. There's a, there's a difference in priority in my life. I'm, I'm not going to skip a meeting at night so I can go home and watch an Oilers game. Another example, I enjoy going to the gym in the morning. It's one of the things that I do each morning is I get up and I head to the gym, but I don't go on Sunday morning. Why? Because i got to be here. You guys probably wonder what's going on. Why is Mark pumping iron when he should be here preaching, right? So there's a relationship there, the gym versus coming to church in the morning. I also, um, people who who know me a bit, they know that I I really love my truck. I have have a truck that I, I love, but I also have a wife that I love. So, Nadine, if there is any question, I do love you more than my truck, if, if that was ever in question. So, I'm not sure if it was, but sometimes the way I talk about my truck, you might wonder and be a little jealous. Now, at the risk of overstating things, what makes the difference? What qualifies one relationship more important than another? Why is my marital relationship more than my 5.8 liter Hemi 4x4? Why is that more important than my truck? Well, I think it can be understood by two things. By levels of duty and levels of devotion that we ascribe to the different relationships we have in our lives. Now, what do I mean by duty? Now, duty is this sense of obligation, this sense of responsibility that we feel or we have towards something or towards someone. You may have heard somebody at one point say, I have a duty to serve my country. They might say, I have a duty to provide a safe work environment for my staff. 
you might feel like you have a duty right now to chuckle because Pastor Mark keeps saying the word duty, and it's a pretty funny word for some people. So there's a bit of a duty that exists there. But duty, we have this responsibility, this obligation to something. Devotion. Devotion is loyalty motivated by love. So it's motivated by love. Loyalty motivated by love for something, someone, or for a cause. You may hear somebody say, you know, Maria's devotion to her husband was never in question. Or Pastor John devoted his life to the church for his entire life. This idea of devotion, of of loyalty motivated by love. Now sometimes, people in the world will question why a certain relationship in your life holds such significance. For example, if you know somebody, and we all do, people we work with, we live with, we go to work or school with, who don't share your same convictions for the Christian faith, that person will probably question why you do certain things. They may wonder, why do you not sleep in on Sunday morning? Why do you get up and go to church when you could sleep in? That person who doesn't share the same convictions of faith may wonder, why do you give your money to that organization? That just seems suspicious and odd to me. They may wonder, why don't you cheat on your taxes? You could get a better refund. Why do you pray before your meal? Aren't you kind of sacrificing some some pride in public by doing that? They don't understand why you would do these things. Why? The relationship holds different values or maybe is non-existent within their life. But even within ourselves, there are times when we can have questions about, about where that relationship is at because we can have these experiences of fluctuating levels of duty and devotion in our own relationship with God. Now, so far in the book of Joshua, we have seen that Israel is demonstrating at times this varying level of commitment in their relationship and their amount of duty and devotion. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster ever since they left Egypt. They've had these high points. They've had these low points. Most recently, as we, as we remember two weeks ago, that they had a bit of a low point when they got defeated in the Battle of Ai. When they were under this blanket of sin and this blanket of disobedience, they had a low point. But then last week, as we heard, that was replaced with a victory because they had returned to purity and they returned to obedience. And we read about that in chapter 8 of Joshua, that return back to purity and obedience, which then led to victory, which amounts to them returning to the duty and devotion to God in the manner which he expects. So we shouldn't be surprised they encountered victory again. And once again, we're at a point where they could declare that he would be their God and they would be his people. So today, we're going to take this last little bit in chapter 8. There's a short little passage, a short but important section found in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. If you have your Bible with you, you can open to it. If you haven't, you can grab a pew Bible. It's on page 175. And you can see in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, a short but important passage, we see this, this ceremony of covenant renewal taking place. And we're going to look at this for a moment today and then use it as a jumping off point to consider both how duty and devotion should be present in our own relationships, in particular our relationships when it comes to God. So as you open your Bibles to that section, we we see that this is immediately following the battle, the, the victorious battle of the city of Ai. And Joshua and the whole nation now travel 30 miles north to a place called Mount Ebal. And when they arrive there, they are in the heart of the land of Canaan now. They're in the heart of the promised land. Now, beside this mountain they're going to, Mount Ebal, there's also another neighboring mountain called Mount Gerizim. And between the two mountains is a valley. And in the valley is the city of Shechem. Now, this is an important city historically for the nation of Israel. Because when Abraham, back 
hundreds of years earlier, when God first called Abraham to leave his land and to come to this promised land and promised that God would make him a, a, a numerous nation, as numerous as the stars of the sky. When God made that promise and Abraham journeyed to the promised land, when Abraham came to Shechem, he stopped and he built an altar. He built a monument there. And this was meant to be a monument of remembrance and of worship, of remembrance and commitment to the promise that was made. And it's a practice that was still being used. As we've seen through the book of Joshua, they build these monuments at momentous occasions along the journey. It's a practice they are still doing to this day. Now, a short time before Joshua and the Israelites arrive at this place, right before Moses had died, he gave them instructions to return to this location. He told them to come back here. When you get into the new promised land, I want you to arrive at this mountain, and I want you to build an altar there, he said. And so, in accordance with the instructions of Moses, which you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 27, in instruction with those, in obedience to those instructions, Joshua takes the nation there, they ascend to the top of Mount Ebal, and they build an altar. And there, with all of the people present, with the entire nation, with, with all of the men and all of the women and all of the children and even all of the foreigners, like, like Rahab, for example, who had joined them along the way. The whole nation just covers this mountain. Hundreds of thousands of people cover this mountain. And they offer sacrifices to God. They offer burnt offerings. They offer up fellowship offerings as, as acts of worship and acts of praise for what he has done for them so far. These burnt offerings, we won't go into all the details of the sacrifices today, but, but they would take the animal and they would place it on the altar and it would be fully consumed. So it was, it was all for God that this pleasing aroma would waft up to the heavens and it was all consumed for God, for glory and for praise and worship of him. And it was usually used as a prelude to other sacrifices that would come because that was followed then with the fellowship offering where they would again place an animal on the altar and they would consume part of it this time as an offering to God. But the other part that was not consumed was meant to be shared as a fellowship meal so that all of the people along with God could share in this fellowship meal, kind of like a Baptist barbecue potluck type of idea, right? As we share in this fellowship meal together. And it was meant to be this time of unity, this time of, of God, we are united, we are together, we are sharing in this moment and in this sacrifice together, a fellowship offering. So after they do this, Joshua stays behind on top of the mountain, but then he tells the people to descend and to head down to the foot of the mountain. And still following the instructions that Moses gave, half of the people assemble themselves at, at, at the foot of Mount Gerizim, and half the people assemble themselves at the foot of Mount Ebal. And in the middle, where the valley is, the priests are stationed with the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God, and all focus is upon there. Now, Josh stayed behind up on top of the mountain, and he did so for a curious reason. He did so because he was instructed to, to write on the stones of that altar the law of Moses. And so as the people descend and start to take these positions, he stays up there and starts scribing on the rocks the law of Moses. Now Moses had given instruction to cover these rocks in a plaster. And a plaster so that you could use it for etching, so the, the words would stand out like an engraving. And this monument, was the, the purpose of it was to serve as a reminder for the present generation, but also for generations to come as they walked by, as they saw this, they could read the law. God's law his instructions on how his people were to live in the land. Now, when he had finished inscribing these words upon the, the rocks of the altar, 
He turned to address the people. And in a loud voice, he then read all of the blessings and the curses contained in the law. We can read about these in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. He turns to the people and he reads them the curses and the blessings contained in the law. To the people that were at Mount Ebal, one by one he reads them out. And after he reads them, all of the people responded by saying, Amen. It means, yes, we agree, we will abide by that. And so one by one he says, Cursed will you be in this land if you make any graven images, if you make any idols for yourself. Cursed will you be if you disobey your mother and your father, if you steal from your neighbor, if you do something that leads people astray, that leads people away from my truth and my love and my law, cursed will you be for that purpose. If you withhold justice, if you engage in sexual immorality, if you threaten or cause violence upon these people, if you cause death among them. And then he says, if you do not follow my commands as you live in this land, cursed will you be. And one by one, all the people responded by saying, Amen. Yes, we will abide by those rules. And then he turned next to Mount Gerizim. And again, one by one, he read the blessings to the people assembled at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And he told him, If you move into this land and you obey my commandments, everywhere you go, you will be blessed. All of the people you meet, all of your daily routine, you'll be blessed. The crops you need to grow, the families you want to have, the livestock you're going to tend for, they will be fruitful. They will multiply. You will have bread on your table every day. You will have fruit to enjoy in all of your endeavors. Whatever you endeavor to do, you can do so without fear. You can do so without worrying about having stumbling blocks and getting tripped up. You can do so without fear of disaster or failure. Why? Because you're living according to my commandments and I will bless you in all of these things if you will abide by me. And all the people said amen these blessings and these curses. You see, what's happening in this, in this short passage is this covenant renewal ceremony where these people are reaffirming their bond to God, that they will be his people and that he will be their God. Now, if you remember back to week one in this, in this series, we talked about how the law in the Old Testament had a different, it was looked at differently than we do today when we hear the word law. See, for them, law was a prescription of of how to live in the land, but was not just a legal code. It wasn't just a list of do's and don'ts. It was also the basis of their relationship with God, a relationship that was understood to include both duty and devotion. There was this duty component that went into it. There were instructions to follow. There were examples of what it looks like to live a pleasing moral life before God and before all the nations. There was a duty component contained within that. But there was also a devotion part contained in it because God was saying, this is the means by which you grow deeper in your knowledge of me. There, this is the way in which you grow deeper in our relationship together. I want to point out the pitfalls that I want my people to steer clear of, and I've written them in my law. I want you to know the blessings if you will abide by me, and I've written them in my law. I want us to know each other, to grow together, to do life together, and you can find those instructions and my love for you and my character that I want you to, to live out before the people. You can find it in the law. That was how they understood this. Duty and devotion. Now, if you've been around the church, around the Christian faith for a while, you've probably heard this word devotion in the past, but used differently. You may be more familiar when you hear the word devotion to think about this regular time of studying your Bible, maybe reading a devotional. 
and spending time in prayer. We talk about doing our devotions, or sometimes around here we use the word instead, finding your space and your place with God. What that means is finding that special space, that, that space in your life, whether that be carving out time, finding space, a physical space where you have a special chair, a special room, a special moment that you, when you look at it, when you see it, you go, that's where God and I spend time intentionally. Not the only place, but intentionally, regularly, daily, we spend time in that place. I sit in that chair and I read my Bible and I pray and I meditate. When I'm driving in my car to work every day, I'm reading and, well, not reading, but listening to Bible on I listen to the Bible on the radio. So you listen to the Bible and maybe spend some time praying. You don't close your eyes while you're driving. But you have that space that you carve out in time and in physical location. And as you do that, you find your place in God's story. As you read, as you pray, as you meditate upon Scripture and listen to what he's revealing to you, you find your place in his story. Space and place. But doing dev- Doing these daily devotions or finding your space and place is kind of a contemporary way of understanding the Old Testament law the way the Israelites did. Because on one hand, there's the, there's the duty part. There's the discipline, the regular practice of doing this, the sense of I need to do this. But on the other hand, there's this underlying purpose and motivation that says I do this because it forms an emotional connection. I do so because it creates a relationship. It allows me to invest in my relationship with God. There's a duty and a devotion that comes from finding our space and place, from, from doing these devotions. It's how we get to know God. It's how we grow in relationship with him. It's how we avoid the pitfalls that may be ahead of us that day we're not even aware of, but God is aware of, and if we start the day with God, he will guide us through them and over them and around them. It's where we learn and we grow in his love for us, and there, our love for him, our devotion, our devotion for who he is. Now, for Israel, this was a common understanding. For Israel, they understood this connection between duty and devotion, between doing and feeling. What about us? What about us? When you think about your relationship with God, which of these two words comes to mind for you? Which which of them stands out for you? And, And as you think about that, is there one that's more prominent in your understanding of how you relate to God? Because for a lot of us, there will be. It's not very often I come across somebody who, who kind of can look at this and go, yeah, it's even. You know, these are both equally relevant in my life. You know, just as God has created us in unique ways, this is a bit of a uniqueness that relates to our personality and the way we relate to others. And based upon how we've been created, it will impact how we relate to God a little bit. You know, there are some people who will lean towards one over the other. But I want you to understand that both are essential that both need to exist. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're more of the duty person. You're on the duty side here where you think, I've made a decision. I, I, you know, there's a day I said a prayer. I've chosen a path. I'm a man of my word, and I will uphold my responsibilities. Duty. It's about the duty. I've made a commitment, and I'm going to stick by it. You know, at times, this is a very sincere decision a person has made, a very honorable thing that they have done, and a very genuine commitment to a belief in Jesus Christ. But there is a danger to that being the sum total of our relationship. Because if that is the sum total of it, we really have reduced Christianity down to a list of rules and tenets. And if that is the sum total of our faith, it doesn't sometimes look that different from some other religions. If it's just a matter of following a certain list of rules. I used to golf with a guy who told me that he had studied all of the religions of the world, all the major religions, and he had practiced them and tried them and was trying to find the right one for him because he was a spiritual person. 
And so he decided that he was a Christian. He said, good news, I, I've decided that I'm a Christian because it makes the most sense and I can fit it into my life the best. He's following a list of rules and tenets that he had discovered. And he thought, this list can drop onto my life the easiest. And that was his definition of Christianity. Now, there's other people who are more of the devotion, the devotion side, where there's this, this emotional part within them where they find themselves in a situation, they have these religious experiences where, where you have an encounter and you're kind of those warm fuzzies. We all probably get those at time to time. We get those warm fuzzies inside. We're like, oh, it just feels so good. I hear that song. Or, or as I'm walking into this grand cathedral, this church, or some people, they walk through the forest. They have these sorts of experiences. Other people, when they hear testimonies, when they watch a baptism, it just, it, it just feels so good to, to see these things and to participate in these sorts of things. And for some people, that's the primary way that they relate to God, but, but not for all of us. I think actually for a smaller part of us, that's the primary way we do it. But from time to time, all of us will have an experience like that. You know, I, I don't get that as much as some other people do, but I remember this one time in particular when we first moved to Edmonton, and, and I had a job working the graveyard shift at the airport, so I had this bit of a long drive, and sometimes I go to work tired, so I turn the music up to kind of help me stay awake. And, and don't judge me, but I was listening to Josh Groban, as I was driving to the airport. But it was like, like 12 years ago. And what was the big song? You lift me up. Right? That one, remember that one? Well, I can stand on mountains. So that song comes on. And I'm like, oh, it's a little louder. A little louder. And so I start singing along to the point where I got the radio cranked. But I'm louder than the radio. I'm just, I'm like fully enthralled in this. Because something just happened. And I just felt this sense of wanting to worship in that song and in that moment. And so I, I pulled into the parkade, and I'm just waiting for the last 15 seconds of the song to end. And before the song ends, I hear this tap on my window. And, and it startled me, and I, so I, I shut off, I looked over, and it's a security guard who came over. And he rolled the window, and he goes, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, oh, I thought you were crying or in distress or something, so, which is a testament to how well I can sing. But... But anyways, I just kind of got caught up in this feeling, this feeling that happened, and I was relating to God through it. But here's the thing. What happens when we are a feeling person and life gets busy? What happens when stress piles up or we get a little down or worse? Yeah, you hit a bit of a dry spell. You just don't have a feeling for a while. Well, when those warm fuzzies start to fade away and they get replaced with feelings like, stop the world, I want to get off, when that's where we're at, instead of those warm fuzzies, if our sum total of our relationship with God is about feeling, we're going to start to fall away. We're going to start to wonder and have questions about, what did I feel in the past? Was that even genuine or real? Like, what is my belief based upon? And in those moments, when we start to have those warm fuzzies fade away and we start to slip, what do we need? We need duty. We need duty to help us to stay the path, to push us through, to keep walking, to keep trudging, even if it feels like we're in quicksand, to keep walking the path until we come to that experience again. But if you're a duty person, don't be surprised if the day comes when your Christian walk feels like it's reduced down to routine, down to religious ritual, and all of a sudden it feels a little cold, feels a little empty. Feels like, what's the point? What is the purpose I do this day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out and there's nothing there? If you get into that point and you feel that, what do you need? You need devotion. You need devotion to add some warmth, to add some feeling, to add some purpose and some motivation to propel you on that journey. So there's a connection between duty and devotion that need to go together. 
Now, to help us understand this even more, and we can see the interplay between duty and devotion, I, I think we can look at the best example is, is marriage. And the Bible uses marriage all the time as an example of this relationship between Jesus and the church, between that relationship that should exist. And we look at this covenant renewal ceremony that happened at Mount Ebal as well, and it's kind of like, like a modern-day uh, couple deciding to renew their wedding vows, where in the past a promise had been made, and it still holds value today, but for various reasons, the couple feels like they need to reaffirm these things. Maybe it's simply because they hit a milestone in their lives. Maybe it's their 10-year anniversary, 25, 50-year anniversary. And the vows they made at the very beginning still hold meaning, but they want to reaffirm that. They want to stand between their, before their friends and family before God and say, I said I do then, and I still do now. Maybe it happens in a situation where a marriage has gone a little dry. Romance has kind of slipped out of the room, checked out a while ago, and the couple wants to draw their hearts back to one another again. So they may choose to do so through, through a ceremony like that of reaffirming their love and their commitment to one another. And at other times, people choose to, to do this because there's been a violation of those vows, because there's been an offense. Somebody stepped out on the marriage in some fashion. And they talked about it and worked and did the hard, hard work of choosing to stay together. And they find themselves down that long road at a point where they want to renew that vow, renew that commitment, and renew that relationship that they have. These covenant renewal ceremonies. We, we see it in the time of Joshua with, with the Israelites. We also can see that in people's lives and marriages around us. There's one author and speaker I got to know a while ago, a guy by the name of Nate Larkin. So you may have heard of him before. First met him at a Promise Keepers conference and then uh, had him come address a, a church I was working at previously. Uh, he's got an incredible testimony that picks up on so many of these ideas of covenant renewal, of relationship renewal in his own life. You can, uh, if you're interested in hearing more of his testimony, you can find him on a great website called IamSecond.com. IamSecond.com, he shares his whole story. I encourage you to check that out if you want to hear more about him. But in short, Nate was a guy who was raised as a preacher's kid. And at fairly early in his life, he sensed a call to ministry, and he was gifted and talented and smart, so he went to Princeton Seminary, graduated from there with his degree, became a pastor in a great church, had a wife, kids, pastorate, degree, life was great. But he had a secret. He had this secret of this, he was ensnared in this sexual obsession that he was not able to tame. And it was consuming him on the inside. So much so to the point where out of fear, out of fear of being caught, he resigned from his ministry. He resigned from his church. And after that happened, he started to fade away from his relationship with God a little bit. But then one day, his wife found out. And she had a couple of days to figure out what she was thinking, feeling, what she was going to do. And she came to him and she said, Nate, I'm done. I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And as he tells this whole story, that was the wake-up call for him. That was the moment where he had lost all of these relationships and he knew what he had to do to break free. And as he tells the story about how he breaks free, it leads back to this renewal of so many relationships in his life. He breaks free and he starts to renew his relationship with God. And God honored his efforts to, to repair that relationship and blessed him to the point where he has a ministry again, a ministry dealing with and, and ministering to guys who struggle with the same stuff he had struggled with and found freedom from. And he was even able to restore his relationship with his wife. And she says today that she's married two guys named Nate Larkin. 
And as hard as the first 20 years were, she would take them again to get the last 10. Because he's a different guy. He's been renewed. There's something different that's happened in that relationship. So whether you are trying to establish, trying to maintain, or trying to renew a relationship, in particular a relationship with God, there's this interplay between duty and devotion that we need to pay attention to. There is a duty to obey, a duty to stop with the bad old and start with the new good. And we can find those instructions in the word of God where he lays out so much of, the, the, of what it looks like to walk that path and to live that life that is pleasing before him and before the world. But we can't just stop at duty because at that point, if that's all it is, we've really turned God into this distant, impersonable, unknowable lawgiver. That's the definition of him, it's just duty because there's also this devotion part where our hearts need to be turned towards him because his heart is turned towards you. His heart is turned towards you and he longs for your heart to be turned towards him because God is knowable. God is present. He does care about you. God is with us. And he desires for us to be with him. So much so that he promised the day would come when he would establish a new promise. He would establish a new promise that is not written words on stone. It's not on, that'll fade and not written on stones that can be broken. You see, Joshua wrote the word of God's law on the rocks of an altar. But God promised that one day would come and he would write those words on our hearts. He would write those words upon our hearts and he would give us a new heart and that he would put in us a new spirit and that the day would come when he would remove that heart of stone that he would take away that heart of stone, that, that heart that is stubborn, that heart that is selfish, maybe that heart that, that, that exists in this room right now that is not allowing God's love and God's truth to permeate it to hear these words. That he wants to remove that heart of stone that is in you. And instead he wants to give you a heart of flesh, which is not a position of weakness. It's a position of victory. Give you that heart of flesh, that, a heart that is soft towards him a heart that is pliable and teachable, a heart that is responsive to his will and what he wants to do in you and through you in this world. And then upon that heart, he wants to write his law so that his words, his truth, his love is internalized inside of you. And it impacts every facet of your life because it's written inside of you. And so that we can truly love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, which Jesus would one day say was the greatest of all the commands, the greatest of all the laws. Now, I think a lot of us understand this duty part. We understand this idea that we, you know, we can kind of love God with our minds through the choices we make, through the thoughts we allow to keep and the thoughts we throw away that we can love God with our strength, kind of doing things, putting energy into doing and serving. We may have room to grow in those areas, but I, but I think we understand, we, we conceptually grasp that aspect, that there's a certain way of thinking and a worldview and a certain type of action that would epitomize a Christian. I think conceptually at least, even if we've got room to grow, I think conceptually we at least grasp that part. But would you agree with me? Would you agree with me that we struggle more on the devotion side? We struggle more with knowing what it looks like and it means to love God with our hearts. What does it mean to, to love God and to serve him with all of our hearts? Well, shortly before Jesus died, when his disciples were gathered with him, he simply put it this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 
Here Jesus maintains this connection between duty and devotion, between loving and obeying. Now we could look at this command and we could say, well, there it is. We can just conclude quite simply that love is obedience. If I obey, I'm loving because loving is obedience. But, but that's not what it says. It, it's not about, we, we can't reduce it down to say that we, it's not about any particular feeling. It's just about doing because what it actually says is, if you love me. It starts with, if you love me, then you will do what I say. We see this in the world around us. There are people that we go to work with, that we go to school with, maybe even people that we live with, who do not consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ. So they don't obey his commands. Why? They don't love him. Some of them don't even like him. So we shouldn't be surprised they're not following his commands. They don't love him. They don't like him. Why would they follow his commands? We know these people in our lives. But there's also people in this world who consider themselves Christians in name only. So what we refer to as nominal Christians or or traditional Christians, people who who grew up in a Christian home, but it really has had very little bearing or meaning upon their life and how they think and do and act about things. Kind of like my golfing buddy. He was kind of a nominal Christian at best. He chose the pieces that fit his life the best the parts that were convenient. But that's not love. That's not love. Like, like think back to your marriage again. If you looked at your spouse and said, honey, I am going to commit to the things that are convenient. I'm going to commit to the parts that don't require any emotion or connection, just just kind of the duties. Give me a checklist, and if it's not too awkward, I'll make sure I tick it off every day. Is your spouse going to be happy with that? Yes? No? No. So why would we expect God to be happy with that? If your spouse isn't going to be happy with it, why why would we expect God to be happy with that sort of relationship? It's not sufficient. But then there's this other situation where there are people who are followers of Jesus Christ who have made a genuine profession of faith. They believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins and that he rose victorious on the third day and God has honored that profession of faith. He has counted them amongst those whose names are written in the book of life. But those people, for whatever reason, don't seem to be experiencing victory and joy as they walk this Christian life. And what's our go-to response if we find ourselves in that situation? Try harder. Work harder. Double the efforts. Read more. Study more. Do more. Stop, you know, stop swearing. Stop drinking. Whatever it may be. Stop doing this. Start doing this. Our go-to thing is duty. And if that's you, I'm going to get in your business a little bit for a second Forgive me, but i got to ask you the question. It's not about duty. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Because if you love him, that might be the core of the issue. It's not about trying harder. It's not about us and our efforts. That's religion. It's about relationship. Do you love him? And do you love him more than anything else in your life? Because duty is a terrible motivator. Duty is an awful motivator. Because it might work for a while, but it's not long before something else gets your attention. Remember at the beginning I said that there are at least relationships that are in our lives and some are higher valued than others? The one you're going to invest in is the one that's higher. And so if there's something in your life that has a higher value than Jesus, it's going to steal your energy and your focus. That's why Jesus said, anyone who loves me Anyone who wants to follow me but doesn't love me more than their mother or their father, doesn't love me more than their sons or daughters, is not worthy of me. He wasn't saying that we're supposed to hate these people. 
What he was saying is if you love anything more than me in this life, it's gonna be tough to follow my commands. If there's anything that has a higher place in your life, you're gonna struggle to follow my commands because if you love me, then you will follow me. Now we can take that word mother, father, son, daughter, we can replace that with words like work. If you love work more than Jesus, you're gonna work more than serving him. If you love your sports team more, if you love your inappropriate relationship more than Jesus, you won't give it up. If you love your addiction more, you won't give it up. If you love this church more, you might serve the church rather than serving Jesus. If you love your independence more, you won't fully commit to what he calls you to do. And Jesus has the authority to say this. He has the authority to ask to be first. Because he offers something that nobody else and nothing else can offer you. What he offers you is, is a love that is found nowhere else. A relationship that you will find nowhere else. A love and a relationship that is so foundational, so transformative, that when you experience it, Jesus becomes the greatest treasure. He doesn't become the means to a treasure. He becomes the treasure. Which is why Paul can sum all this up in, in Philippians by saying, I count everything as a loss. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. There's nothing in Paul's life more important. Everything else is counted a loss. So where does a love like this come from? Well, first it comes from grasping that God first loved you. That God first loved you in a way that you will find in no other. And it starts by being stunned that the God of the universe, the God who created all that exists, that all it is, that all ever was, is, and ever will be, loves you and knows you. Psalm 139 says it so clearly that this God who knows all and created all knows everything you will say, everything you will do, everywhere you will go. He knows your dreams. He knows your struggles. He knows you because he wonderfully and intimately made you. He knows everything about you, struggles, failures, victories. He knows those secret places that exist in your life. And you know what? He still loves you. He still loves you. He knows the good and the bad, but he still wants to share in that fellowship meal with you. He still wants to enjoy that with you. And when you understand that, we can then become overwhelmed with the fact that he didn't reject us because he saw our sinfulness. He didn't reject us because he saw those parts of us. Instead, he stepped into it. He stepped into it to solve it. That while we were still distant, while we were still hostile to God, Jesus Christ died on our behalf to pay the price for our sins. Why? Because without him, we would remain lost in our sins forever. Without him, there was no solution. The problem was too big for any of us to solve. That even when we didn't deserve it, he stepped in. And he gave his life so we could be with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We'd have the eternal life now. You thought about that? Eternal life starts now. If you've accepted Christ, you're already living eternity. We're already living in eternity if we're a follower of Christ. And Jesus promises in John 10, 10 that if we will follow him, that while the world and the thief comes to destroy and to steal, he comes to give us life in abundance in the now. 
not problem-free, not free from strife, not free from stress, but walking with him and having life in abundance that is unparalleled to life without him. But then for all of eternity, because we will never perish, but live with him eternally. And when that grasps you, when the reality of that relationship, of that love, of that act, of that sacrifice, when that grasps you, when you get a taste of the treasure of who Jesus is and you delight in him and you find that you can be satisfied in him, you can find contentment in him, then we come to understand what he means when he says, if you love me, not as a means to an end, but as your treasure, if you love me, then you will want to and you'll be able to obey me. So as you consider your relationships in, in, in the world with people, as you consider your relationship with God, or maybe even your, your lack thereof, where do duty and devotion fit in? I want to leave you with that question to consider. If you're strong in the duty area, that's fantastic, but I want to encourage you to consider what does it look like to grow in devotion? If you're strong in that devotion side, what would it look like to grow in the duty? Because the two go hand in hand. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, maybe you've never met him. Maybe you've always thought it's just, it's just, it's just another religion. It's another set of do's and don'ts, and I'm checking out the do's and the don'ts. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. The religion flows from that, this idea of following certain steps and, and beliefs and process. That, 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 that's part of it. But without the relationship, it's empty. It starts with that relationship with Jesus Christ. Because God came to meet you where you are, to heal your heart, to forgive your sins, to give you the freedom that perhaps you have wondered where in the world does it come from. He's not just an idea, a concept. He's not just a man of history who was a great teacher. He is God's son who came to earth to pay the price that we couldn't pay. And when we finally take that step of accepting and believing that hard heart that maybe right now is even saying it's garbage, it's not true, that heart is removed with a heart of flesh. And we start to see, understand, and we can start to truly love him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you with words that I don't think any of us have for the sacrifice that you made, for the love that you have for us. God, I know what it's like to have a hard heart. I know what it's like to, to struggle with, with doubts and questions. I know what it's like to, to not want to let go of parts of myself. I, I know what it's like to know that there's implications, that if there is a God and he loves me, then it, it changes everything. I know what that's like. So I just pray, God, that if, if any of us here are struggling with that, that, that your spirit would soften the heart that your love and your truth would permeate into our hearts. And we would have that breaking of, of that hard shell so that, Lord, you would give us a heart that is pliable and teachable. God, I pray those people would, they may be here, would, would make themselves known for in the service so we could talk more about them. But God, for a lot of us here, Lord, who have made that profession of faith and we know our hearts are soft and pliable, but but there's still a stubbornness at times. Now, whatever that may be defined as or look like in our lives, I just pray, Lord, that, that you, your spirit that is among us and your spirit that is within us would just guide us to truth. 
will guide us to understand what the next step in our relationship looks like you. That we would truly live lives of, of obedience, but also lives of devotion. Fully devoted hearts to you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.